And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. When we pray the Lord's Prayer together, the first petition that we make is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing in the heart of Jesus is the hallowing of his Father's name. The top priority, the number one priority in the heart of Jesus is that his Father's name be hallowed. So when we wake up in the morning, by grace, the first thing on our mind should be, hallowed be thy name, by the way I get out of bed, by the way I shower and eat breakfast and talk to my kids and my wife. Let your name be hallowed. Work in me and in all Christians all over the world that your name might be hallowed today. That's our number one prayer. Father, do it. When you come to verse 15 of this text, you bump into that word. Now, as far as I know, I didn't think to look this up, but it hit me during the first service as I was preaching on this that I don't think this word is translated hallow anywhere in the Bible except in the Lord's Prayer. It's so traditional, you just can't change the Lord's Prayer. And so you leave it, hallowed be thy name. But this word here in verse 15 is the same word, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Or if you have the NIV... It says, set apart Christ as Lord. That's the same word as hallowed be thy name, sanctified be thy name, set apart be thy name. Here it's Christ, there it's the Father. I don't think we should make too much of that. To hallow the Father, God the Father, and to hallow God the Son is one hallowing of worship, of reverence. Now what does that mean? What are you meaning when you say, Father, cause your name to be hallowed? Jesus, I hallow your name as Lord now in my heart. What what does that mean? What are we saying? I think we're saying, regard him as the holiest of all beings in a class by himself. I think that's why the NIV translates it, set him apart. They don't mean just any old kind of setting apart, like a jar of jelly or a garbage pail is set apart in a little out-of-the-way place in the kitchen. They mean set apart like you set apart diamonds in some special place in your house or like you set apart all the gold in Fort Knox behind big walls. 
set apart because he's so infinitely valuable. He's in a class by himself. He has the highest place set apart. He's the most admired, the most esteemed, the most treasured of all beings. That's the way we hallow him in our heart. When, when we treasure him and esteem him and regard him as high. And when it focuses right in on lordship and it says... Uh, sanctify or hallow Christ as Lord, that adds, I think, the dimension of bow before him, be reverent before him, acknowledge that he is majestic and powerful and sovereign, a ruler and a king as Lord. If, if you've been reading with some of us through the Bible, you know that right now we're in Isaiah 43 and 44 and 45 and 46 and you just you find yourself climbing these alps of the majesty of God in these central chapters of Isaiah and I think that's why a word like sanctify or hallow is used for the lordship of Christ the Christ who can say I act and who can hinder it? There is none beside me. When you hear that, you should tremble and go on your face and say, I am so glad that you are my God and I am not your enemy. That's a hallowing of the name of God and a hallowing of Christ as Lord in our hearts. Set him apart. Second question besides what does it mean? What has that got to do with the rest of what's in this text now? Okay, we've got things like give a defense for your hope, uh, be fearless before your enemies, be meek and reverent in your answers, uh, take suffering if necessary for righteousness, be zealous for doing good. Now, what does all of that have to do with this hallowing or sanctifying or valuing of Christ in your heart? That's my next question. So let's get the answer by reading. Starting uh, about the end of verse 14 here where it says, do not fear. Start there with me. Do not fear their intimidation or what they fear. And do not be troubled. But, note this is kind of an alternative thing given here now. Don't fear, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. Don't fear, don't be troubled, sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord. So what, what does that tell us? One of the things it tells me is fearlessness hallows Christ as Lord. If fear can go out of your heart for some reason, in some way, Christ is hallowed by that happening, sanctified, valued. Now, how is that? How does that work? Why is it that if you don't fear men, Christ is hallowed? Let's just keep reading and, and the answer will be given. Sanctify, I'm at verse 15 now. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And this next phrase, I think, is another way that happens. So you could put in a by here, by always being ready. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. So now boil that down. Sanctify or hallow Christ as Lord in your heart by giving a good defense of your hope. Now why is that? 
Why is it that being able and giving a good defense of your hope hallows Christ, sanctifies Christ, shows him to be valuable? Why is that? I think the reason is Christ is your hope. Christ is the ground of your hope. Christ is the goal of your hope. And so if you give a defense of the stability and strength and depth and durability of your hope, you're really showing how great and durable and stable Christ is. So Christ is treasured and valued and hallowed and set apart as infinitely uh, glorious, stable, trustworthy, when you can give a strong, uh, credible defense of him as your hope. Now that gives us the bridge back to verse 14, where we asked, why is it that fearlessness hallows Christ? And now the answer is, because fearlessness is based on this hope. And this hope is Christ. And so you got two things here. They're really not that separate. Two ways of hallowing Christ in your heart. And showing him to be the, the diamond, the gold, that you've set apart as the treasure of your life. The first, or the, start with the second. The second is... Give a defense of your hope. Show that your hope is durable and stable and strong and trustworthy and won't let you down. And Christ rises as you do that as, as treasured and manifestly worthy and hallowed in your heart. But the behavior that follows from that hope, one of it, one of the pieces of that behavior is fearlessness. When people are mean to you or unkind to you. Or stress you out. Or make fun of you at school. If you're fearless before that and you maintain your meekness and your reverence and your self-control, Christ starts to be seen as a treasure and felt as a wonderful, wonderful, uh, glorious, trustworthy, stable reality in your life. So those two things. Now... Let me, let me break this down. I, I see two big things then in this text. There's some little things. We'll talk about four other little things, but two big things. One is hallowing the name of Christ, and the other is hoping. Being able to give a good defense of your hope. Those are the two bands that kind of uh, hold this text and all of its pieces together. But here are the four sub-strands that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Number one, Christ is sanctified in your heart when your hope is fearless. Number two, Christ is sanctified or valued in your heart when your hope is well defended. Third, Christ is sanctified and valued in your heart as Lord when your hope is meek. Fourth, Christ is sanctified and valued as Lord in your heart when your hope is zealous. So there are four pieces, four trees in the forest. But I'm really eager, I'm mainly eager this morning, that you see the forest and not miss it for the trees. So let me step back here and just take another minute or two to press home the main point. Because this is what gripped me most deeply. And I, I feel like when that happens in sermon preparation, that's where the Lord wants me to bank for a minute and press. The main point, as I said in the welcome this morning, is that at the core of Christianity is this glorious truth that we have a God whose aim is to be hallowed in the universe. 
and the means by which he aims to be hallowed in us is by our hoping in him. That's what I want you to take away this morning. God is the kind of creator, Lord God, who means to be hallowed through our hoping in him. Now that is glorious good news. Now I want to feel the goodness of it, so I'm going to contrast it with something this morning. Another religion. Right at the core, right at the center of Christianity. When you wake up in the morning, and by grace there rises in your heart, yes, even as I get out of bed, the main reason of my existence is to hallow your name. Treasure it, value it, sanctify it, set apart as my greatest treasure. Is the next feeling that rises weight or is it wings? Which is it? Christianity is glorious and different from all other religions because at that point in your life, it gives wings. God means to be hallowed by the next feeling being hope and not a harried sense of burdened labor. He means for you to mount up with wings like eagles, for you to run and not grow weary, for you to walk and not faint and not be crushed under the burden of having to hallow his name. Oh no, not again the hallowing of God's name. If we understand Christianity, the name of God and his son Christ are hallowed and sanctified in us by our hoping not in ourselves or anything we can accomplish, but in him. That's good news, and that's the heart of Christianity. Unlike all the other religions of the world, one of which is not called of religion, but is the main competitor with Christianity in America. One of you, a week or so ago, came up to me and gave me a little piece of paper with a declaration on it that had been used in July in your workplace in, I don't know what they call these groups, they're all different names for them, for how to start feeling good about yourself and, and everybody else, I suppose. This one was called the Declaration of Self-Esteem, and I want to read you an excerpt from it. I am me. In all the world, there is no one else exactly like me. Everything that comes out of me is authentically mine because I alone chose it. I own me, and therefore I can engineer me. I am me, and I am okay. Now, there are a lot of religions in the world. That is the main competitor with Christianity in America. Call it what we will. My question is this, given what I just described as Christianity, 
But God wills for him to be exalted as the owner through our meek, childlike, confident, hoping in him to do what needs to be done. Versus the religion that says, I own me, I engineer me, I invent me, and I am me, and I am okay. Which of those two religions are a burden? Which one's crush? Which one crushes? Christianity offers a Savior whose glory is upheld by our acknowledgement of our weakness and our dependence upon Him. That's all. And that's a great religion to have if you're a person like me. Christ is hallowed in us by our hoping in Him. So when you wake up in the morning and you feel the thought and it, it's a prayer and it's a duty, hallowed be thy name. Let your name be hallowed in my family, at work, in my life, my heart, my prayer, my devotions, my sport, my leisure, my vacations, my vocation. Let your name be hallowed. I just pray now after this morning that the next thought will also be the memory and that happens not through a frenzied, harried, burdened labor to make it happen but through hoping like a little child in the awesome provision of God for your future. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Whatever men may do to you, I will not forsake you. No good thing will I withhold from you. I will work everything together for your good. I will be a son to you and a shield to you. I will never leave you. Nothing can separate you from my love for you. Let that be your second thought. And let there be wings and not wait at that point. This other religion is a tragedy. It is a great tragedy. The, the religion that says, I alone choose everything that comes out of me. I can invent new things within me. I own me and I can engineer me. And I believe in me and I am okay. I would despair. I would absolutely despair if that were my religion. Left to clear my own conscience. Left to forgive my own sin, left to find my own meaning, left to uphold my own cause, left to carry my own burdens, left to protect my own life, left to uphold what is, I thought, the right thing to do, left to overcome my own fears, left to heal my own wounds, left to secure my own future, left to comfort myself in my dying. And the only liturgy... Indeed, the only act of redemption that is offered me in this religion is the repetition, the mantra-like repetition in front of the damning mirror. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. And everything else witnesses 
to the opposite. It is a tragedy. Millions of our countrymen are dying under this horrible burden of self. No help. No God. No Savior. Just the mantra, I must be okay. It is the lie of the devil that that is freedom. It is a false and deceptive feeling when that is felt to be liberty. And it won't be felt as liberty on your deathbed. I promise you, it won't. It's the kind of liberty that a skydiver has with no parachute. Freedom. It just feels so free. Weightless. Move. Not realizing that 120 miles an hour times his weight awaits him at the judgment. It's no freedom. It's no freedom. Every now and then they wake up and they glimpse the earth coming and they say, it just can't be. I, I can't need a parachute. I can't need a crutch. I can't need a crutch. It must be true. I must be okay. That's the main point of the sermon. Now there are, the main point of the sermon is that Christianity is a glorious alternative to that. That God means not for us, but for himself to be hallowed. And he means for himself to be hallowed and treasured and exalted through our resting, hoping, trusting confidence in him. God is most hallowed in you when you are most hopeful in him. Just a brief word about these four subpoints, just to press it home, spell it out a little further. You sanctify Christ as Lord by a hope that is fearless. See that in verse 14 again? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. So we can see what Peter's doing. He's quoting his Lord here, Matthew 5:10. Blessed are you when men persecute you for righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And Peter is simply saying, bank on that hope that Jesus gave you in the Beatitudes. He gave you a great, strong hope that when suffering comes in the path of righteousness, and it doesn't have to be just persecution. Anything that befalls you in the path of righteousness while you are walking, confessing your sins when you stumble, getting back on the track and setting your face towards holiness, anything that befalls you on that path, you're blessed in that suffering. God will come to you in that suffering. He'll minister to you. He will turn it for your good and strengthen your faith and multiply your rewards because of it. He says, because of that hope, cast fear away. And when that happens, Christ is sanctified. Shown to be valuable in your heart. That's number one. Number two, Christ is sanctified or valued in, as Lord by a well-defended 
hope. Verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart by always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. It's scary, right? Scary. Because what I'm saying here is a poorly grounded hope does not honor the Lord. So if you were to ask me, if somebody were to ask me, John, why do you trust Jesus to forgive your sins, to be with you like you say, and, and as you say, to give you eternal life? Why do you do that? What's your basis for thinking that could be true and dependable? If I answer, hmm, well, no reason really, I just grew up in a Christian home and my parents were believed that and so I started believing it and... That's all. No. Jesus is not honored by that answer. He doesn't get any honor. In fact, he's shown to be a fool. Or if you say, well, everybody's got a religion. You got a religion. I got a religion. You got yours. I got mine. That's no honor to Jesus. For Jesus to be sanctified in our hearts, our answer to the question, what's your reason for hope, has to be a good one. And I said, this is scary, because I know the kind of feelings that start to rise in your heart right now. I might just step aside and say, uh, uh, who would like to come? I'm going to come here and, how will you come, you know? Tell us all the reasons now and show us a good, def- and, and we're all nervous that, that, good night, maybe my reason isn't good enough. So Jesus won't get any honor from the way I answer that. Okay. Um... I risk mentioning this because I'm going to wind up contradicting it in just a minute. At the back of my book, Desiring God, I wrote a little appendix called, Is the Bible a Reliable Guide to Lasting Joy? That's my answer to 1 Corinthians 3.15. I added that at the end of the book because I thought, having said everything I said about joy in Christ, somebody might come to me and say, Yeah, but so, so what? How do you know it's true? You said all this on the basis of the Bible. This thing is saturated with Bible, but I don't believe the Bible. So I added that appendix to bear testimony. That's my answer. And there's more. I, but now I'm going to contradict it. I do not want at this moment in the service for you to be feeling, I've got to read a book. i got to become a scholar. i got to be a historian here. i got to get some, i got to go to school. i got to get some reasons. That's not the impulse. Here's what I want to say. I don't want to send you to the library or the bookstore. I want to send you to your closet. Because I don't want you to be a second-hander. Worldly people can spot second-handers pretty easily. Well, I think it said on page 161 that... Oh, what was that reason for my hope? I said, hmm, that's a strange ground for your hope. (laughs) Look, you've got to go to your closet sometime today. If right now, you're not sure. And in your closet, say, Father, as much as it lies within me, I believe that I hope in you. You are my God. Jesus, you're my Savior. My only hope for forgiveness, for comfort, for meaning, for eternal life, for escaping judgment, for avoiding condemnation. You're my only hope. I I do believe you. Would you help me to understand why that is? 
if, if I don't have a handle on it, would you show me why I believe? And at that moment, I mean, that's a scary thing to do, you know, because you might not get an answer and conclude it's groundless. Where'd I get this? It is tradition. That's a scary thing. But you've got to do that if you're going to ever be real. We've got to do it if we're going to be a church that's real. He'll give you an answer. Let me give you... Here, here are the kinds of things the Lord is going to say, I believe. I've done this enough times and talked to enough people that I know the kinds of things the Lord says. And I get him, I'm getting it from His Word, too, which helps back it up. He's going to say things like this. It might have to do with, one, the trustworthiness of the witnesses that you're reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, writer to the Hebrews. When you talk with somebody and you have to decide if they're trustworthy, what do you do? How do you decide if somebody's trustworthy? You talk to them. You spend some time with them. You, you analyze what they've said. Now, you, you've got some pretty extensive conversation going on here with Matthew and with Mark and with Luke and with John. And when you read people and you talk to people, you, you tend to get some pretty well-informed judgments about their trustworthiness. So your answer might go along those lines. Second, it might be the self-authenticating character of Jesus. You might say, I have spent so much time reading the teachings of Jesus and looking at the acts of Jesus that I say with his enemies, no man ever spoke like this man. This man is no fool. I mean, if nobody, if anybody's a fool, this man's not a fool. This man's no megalomaniac. This man's no deceiver. I've got to take seriously what this man says. That's not a bad answer. Third, it might have to do with the meaning and the sense that Christ and the Christian worldview gives to the world. Where did we come from? Where are we going? How did you get a conscience? I sat there yesterday typing away at this computer, and this happens about every two weeks or so. I say, my God, this is awesome! I am a human! I'm alive. Look at this computer. I haven't a clue how this thing works. Humans. Humans created this. We are not monkeys. I mean, I love my wife. Ben's home. I, I mean, just sometimes life, just the, the, the fact that you and I are looking at each other right now, we're communicating with language and feelings are rising and truth is being transmitted. This is awesome. This is awesome. Just picture chimpanzees running around here. Really. I mean, really. So the point is, it could be that a religion that gives meaning to the core issues and essences of life might have something going for it. The Lord might say that. Or he might say it has to do with the evidence of the resurrection and these fishermen who had given up and they were ready to go fishing and said, we had hoped that he would be the redeemer of Israel, but it's all over. And 40 days later, they're laying down their lives for the gospel and nobody can find the body. It might have something to do with that. Or it might have to do with fulfilled prophecy. God was so good to me this morning. I got up early to read the Bible and I'm reading through Isaiah 46, 47, 48. And along comes Isaiah 48. 
Look at verse 5 sometime today. And it says, the reason, God says to, to Israel, the reason I told you long time ago what I was going to do is so that when I did it, you wouldn't say my idols did it. Which means that the point of prophecy is the credibility of God. That's the point of prophecy. So you you might just go back to the Old Testament and say, well, now let's just see what prophecies were marvelously fulfilled 700 years later. Dozens and dozens of them. It might have to do with that in the answer that you give for the hope that is in you. Or it might have to do with this text in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 where it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And it may simply be that what God will say to you in your closet today is, you see glory in the cross. You see beauty in the cross. As a sinner. And there may be that he would simply well up by his spirit in you so powerfully. Three people came to me after the first service with the same word. And I'm going to act on it right now. They said, at this point in your message, I was so convicted about my closet that I felt we had to stop and pray because God wants to Speak the ground of hope right now. So I want us to pray. Let's pray. And I just want to be quiet, Father, for a minute. and We're almost done. And ask that this would be the closet right now. Some of us are so busy on Sunday afternoon that maybe we won't get there, but here we are. Father, draw near. And teach us the ground of our hope. Provide that personal, sweet revelation of the glory of Christ in the gospel that is self-authenticating. Well, I've got two more points, and uh, I'm just going to mention them briefly. You will sanctify Christ in your heart if you have a meek hope. Give your answer with meekness and reverence. Preachers, politicians, teachers, debaters of all kinds run the risk of lifting their voice and becoming strident when their points are the weakest. You don't have to do that. There is a stability in Christ that when you're opposed or scoffed at because of your faith, you don't need to get uptight about that. You can be meek because you came out of the closet knowing Him. And the last point... 
The fourth point is that you sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts when your hope is zealous for good deeds. Verse 13, verse 16, verse 17. The point here is simply that when I stress that the glory of Christianity is that God wants his name to be hallowed through your hoping in what he does for you rather than what you do for him, that does not lead to passivity. Never has in the history of the Christian church. The people that believe that most dearly and most intently have the Holy Spirit working not instead of them, but inside of them. Stirring them up to maximize their enjoyment of the grace of God shed abroad in their labors. God took the sting out of death and he took the futility out of labor. So that he says, you will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run. Not lie down, you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. His power doesn't take the joy of meaningful labor and productivity away from us. It gets under it. It gets behind it. It gets in it. It gets in front of it with reward. It empowers it so that it's satisfying and freeing and liberating. And you come to the end of your day wonderfully weary, not excruciatingly weary. Well, that's it. The main point of the message is God's name and his son's name should be hallowed in our hearts and it is hallowed best when we hope most in him. A hope that is well defended, a hope that is meek, a hope that is fearless and a hope that is zealous. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I long like you did for several in the first service, that your power and your spirit would so move in the hearts of your people now, perhaps with the prayer teams afterwards, that a revelation of the glory of your all-sufficient grace would be given and that we would leave here with our hope on a solid rock that cannot be shaken, and with a word on our lips, ready to give a reason to others for the hope that is in us. If that's your desire for yourself and for this church, let's say together, Amen. Amen.